Hi, I'm Dave Trout of UTR Media and wanted to take a quick second to introduce you to our brand new podcast. If you are a music lover like me, we are the benefactors of the release date. It's when brand new music just falls into our laps. But every release date carries a story, usually an untold story. It's all the key meetings, the big decisions, swerves, and drama that made that release date a reality. UTR Media's new podcast, Release Date, is available now. I am really excited about it. It's one of our most ambitious projects to date as we chronicle the making of an album from concept to creation. You can find it now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at utrmedia.org. And stay tuned at the end of this podcast episode, we will play the first four minutes of release date so you can see what it sounds like. Now, enjoy the show. And then when he finished the song and they kind of finished singing, they just started chanting, Rich, more rich, more rich. She looked at Rich. She said his face read, like, you missed, you you missed, missed it. it. Welcome to Green Room Door, a production of UTR Media. I'm Dave Trout, and each episode we love to not just take you to the venue, not just take you backstage, but through the Green Room Door to give you unparalleled access to some of the songwriters making the most meaningful music today. And um, we are excited to bring you a conversation with Seattle-based singer-songwriter Jesse McNeil in the second half of today's show. And in the first half, uh, we're mainly actually going to be focusing on a book, but very music-centric. Um, we'll be chatting with Andrew Greer, who um, not only is a uh, an author, but also a fine singer-songwriter himself. In fact, if you are not familiar with his music, um, here is a taste of some of what he's done. friends fearfully cried He woke and spoke without fear The waves they calmed and disappeared And every star to dig into some of the music of Andrew Greer, um, I, would, I would love for you to visit his website. Um, it's a little tricky, so pay attention. It's andrew-greer, that's G-R-E-E-R, andrew-greer.com. And, uh, but we are primarily focusing about a, on a book today, um, but very music-centric nonetheless. Not only was it written by a singer-songwriter, but uh, the theme of it is all about the life and lyrics of a different singer-songwriter, the late, great Rich Mullins. So uh, we'll be talking about his book that just came out last month, Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth. Let's enjoy 
this conversation, uh, which actually was one of the most recent interviews I did. Uh, we just recorded this last week. Um, here's our conversation with Andrew Greer. So, Andrew, you, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, began a relationship with you through music. You're, uh-huh. um, you're you have been a singer songwriter and still are still, still, <laughs> yeah. still you know, it's just like a former life. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you just wear a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. So I know we're going to talk a lot about your book and I just wanted to make it clear that, you know, your life in music has really kind of what opened that. Door. Sure. Yeah. That music brought me to the table. Uh, is what I always, that's how I like to think of it. And music is still home, you know, no matter where I go and what I do, I feel at home with music. But it is true that as my career has evolved and really some of my interests have evolved, I didn't know that I would be interested in authoring books. I didn't know that I would be interested in hosting events or being on the radio or doing some things that I get to do now. I just didn't know that was part of my wheelhouse. But really the kind of singer-songwriter thing uh, helped fashion you know it, it it housed some of those maybe talents or abilities already that others I think started to realize outside of me and then ask me to fill and then as I filled those as I said yes to some opportunities then I was like wow I love you know writing I love authoring I love talking 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 <laughs> <laughs> well that's good so. for this show yeah <laughs> uh, so uh now but you you've been writing for a long time just in different music publications and that's right yeah yeah editorial more so more journalistic style of writing uh for different magazines everything from christianity today to ccm magazine uh to even uh, like parenting teens which you know i'm not even a parent so uh that's interesting but uh, anything that had spiritual perspectives or perspectives on music so yes the written word I was actually asked I don't know if this is of interest to you or not but when I was in college at Belmont University my senior year of college the editor of the of Belmont Vision which was our newspaper asked if I'd be willing to do a pop Q&A column just because I was already working for Michael W. Smith and Rockettown Records at the time just behind the scenes you know and so I had gotten to know some people some producers some artists already and so they were just like hey why don't you use some of your contacts I mean it's literally like my life hasn't changed in 15 years you know (laughs) but why don't you use some of your contacts to fill up this pop Q&A and really under the editorial advice of of my editor there I learned that I liked words I liked crafting words and she really helped me hone that in fairly quickly you know rather than growing up wanting to do that she was like hey you've got a knack for it here's what i would do here here and here and it taught me so much okay so l- let's just fast forward and okay. jump right into winds of heaven stuff yes. of earth is the the book that just released mm-hmm. that that uh you wrote and helped kind of um gather a bunch of conversations Curate, yeah. around uh, the life, the ministry, the music, the lyrics of Rich Mullins. Right. So let's just kind of start at the beginning of that. How did that How did that come to the table for you? Sure. You know, in the subtitle, Spiritual Conversations Inspired by the Life and Lyrics of Rich Mullins, is really where it landed. Mm-hmm. But where it began, uh, Randy Cox, who was a part of Meadow Green Publishing back in the 80s, which is where Rich landed, Uh, and was developed as a songwriter after Senior Praise to the Lord got in the hands of Amy and Amy's management. Then they started developing Rich as a writer, invited him to Nashville, and he started writing more for Amy and other artists, which back then that was kind of the trajectory. Um, 
to fashion them as a songwriter and then to move them into artist realm if there, there was that potential, which they did with Rich. Of course, throwing him on one of Amy's big tours in the mid-'80s. It which doesn't I think hurt. No, it doesn't hurt at all, especially back then when you were only, yeah. you know, here's 10 artists for you in yeah. Christian music, you know? Right. And so he became a well-known name, though his records didn't take off right away, and I think gave, an Im- gave him an immediate resistance to big tours. You know, that was his only bus tour ever. Wow. And, of course, he wasn't even a big name then. And as he became a bigger name, his desire for things like bus tours diminished even more. But, mm. yeah, real interesting tidbit. Yeah. Uh, but Randy has some songs that are earlier songs of riches that have kind of been fashioned to have a little more of commercial appeal, at least in kind of industry terms. So these he, are songs that weren't released on previous Rich Mullins albums. That, from what I know, I want to go on record always saying from what I know. <laughs> from what you know. Because <laughs> apparently I don't know much I'm learning. Yeah. But Beth Lutz, she uh, is a wonderful resource for early Rich songs. But yeah. she was in Zion with Rich yeah. from Cincinnati Bible College, a good friend of Rich's all through his life, uh, worked with Rich some, of course. So she has this huge Apparently, huge catalog of rich songs that, yeah, have never been recorded. These songs that Randy was bringing to the table, he has about 10, are part of that. But Lowell Alexander and Phil Nash, two Nashville writers, and Lowell started his songwriting career because of Rich. So Mm -hmm. a deep connection there. Again, um, did some changes and things a few years back with the blessing of the family and all that stuff. So Randy brought those to the table of the publishers. I think Randy was just wanting to exploit these as much as possible in some way in commemoration of the 20th anniversary. I mean that in every positive sense. And Worthy Publishing, who published the book, was brought to their attention, but they were like, what do we do with lyrics from a, right. a book form? That's when they brought me to the table. Mm-hmm. I'd already been working with them on another project that's not released yet, and they said, could we... This was just last November, and, of course, the book released in September, not even a year later. Yeah, Very fast track in yeah. book world. So... They wanted to put it on the fast track. But that's when we started ideating, brainstorming. What does this look like? Wanted to have contributors come in and wanted to say, okay, we don't need a tribute. We don't need another biography. They've been done. They've been done well. How can we showcase a continuation, an exploration that continues the conversations that Rich began in his life and show that there's all these people with platforms and influences of their own now that it is we're directly influenced by Rich. So those platforms, therefore, are indirectly yeah. More directly influenced by Rich. Contributors like, you would suspect, Andrew Peterson and Sarah Groves, but even Third Day and and Brandon Heath, some more mainstream names. And, of course, Amy Grant wrote The Ford, And she was maybe less influenced as much as a peer, but I would say was influenced as a peer. Some of her recollections about how, I think, the v- I can't, I'm paraphrasing the first line of The Ford, of her Ford, but she said something to the degree of, uh, never experienced God in the context of music. Rich introduced me uh, to God in the context of music like I had never experienced before, something to that yeah. degree. So you can see the profound impact you know, yeah. he had. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember her talking about Rich years and years ago. This is Amy Grant. Mm-hmm. And she said something that I think I was just too young to uh, to kind of understand or grasp, but she said that, I think it was maybe even the year he died, you know, th- with mm-hmm. the, the early tributes that were mm-hmm. just starting. And he said that Rich was someone that that walked to the the cliffs of the cavern mm-hmm. and came back to tell us about it. And wow. And I didn't really understand what that meant exactly. But as I have matured and grown, I've I realized that he like she picked up that he was able to see a, a, a 
you know, even just a spiritual experience that many of us weren't able to see and yet come back and help us to understand God, you know, the God that he was personally experiencing in a deep way and, and share that. Yeah, I love what she said. I think Amy has a wonderful way of articulating things, not unlike Rich, just maybe with a little more tenderness sometimes yeah. or less straightforwardness. Yeah, I think probably I can't opine for Amy, but what's interesting about that conversation is I think she probably wishes she could have at times. I think she's someone who's, you know, um, towed the borders of the cliffs, you know, and, oh, yeah. and that kind of thing in her own life, but has not always had the ability with her audience to speak as candidly, maybe as rich yeah. was or did whatever, you know, I mean, you know, for so many years, Amy was the sweetheart of Christian music. What, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. As far as you have to use certain language, but which rich didn't, rich was not the sweetheart of Christian <laughs> music. So. so he was able to get away with a lot. And yeah. as far as just being able to speak off the cuff and How not having to things. edit every word and, uh, yeah, so so share a little bit about what, you know, now that you were able to talk to all these contributors mm -hmm. and gather these stories and um, even just some of the conversations that they're wrestling with today, um, did you see any sort of themes emerging or, or threads that were kind of weaving throughout different people's experiences? Well, sure. I think I ended up with three pretty significant themes in the book that everyone tied into, including my you know, authorship of it, it would, felt very significant that there were three rich conversations I wanted to focus on based on what I was hearing. One is uh, this idea of love as primary, the gospel, I call it the gospel of belonging, the idea that uh, inclusivity way before that meant what it, it may um, mean today, this idea that Jesus sets the table for communion, we're all invited without exclusion. I think rich was trying to express that, was trying to, uh, through his life, was trying to facilitate an environment where we all belong, or where the gospel is really allowing us all to come to the table. It does, the gospel does allow us, but where we were allowing ourselves to come to the table and be loved by God just because we are, you know. And then relationship versus religion, which I think most people would identify or see the most, that he was not so concerned about doctrines as he was dialogue and discourse face-to-face -face with people, um, that it was always people first, which I think if you look in the Gospels at Jesus' life, you see that I, you, we see a direct, that is what Jesus, how he lived, you know, was church never got in the way. Even the Sabbath, even the holy laws could not get in the way of Jesus ministering to people or Jesus being a friend to people, Jesus being a healer to people, whatever that is. So if we're to be disciples of Christ, when it only makes sense that we would pattern after that, you know, with spirit sensitivity, I guess, because we're not Jesus yeah. you know, we don't have the level of discernment. So I think Rich was really trying that, I think imperfectly, but really wanted to put people over principle. And then lastly, I think also what was apparent in his life, this really big kind of almost weird sometimes obsession with death, mm. but maybe eternal matters uh, is a more softer way to say it. Like, I really do think, I didn't know him, so I this is all gleaning. Yeah. But people who did know him echo this, that there just was like this 
such a huge urge towards forever that it seemed like how long it was just a ticking time like how, yeah. how long life could contain him yeah this side of life yeah yeah it's uh, so i was i think i was 21 at the time that he died um and you were you're you're younger than me yeah, so, so you were a teenager i was a preteen yeah a preteen or yeah yeah 12 or 13 yeah yeah so or 14 s- so uh, you know I, I would just assume that that most of your sort of encounters with mm-hmm. rich was more in recent years you know what yeah you know. Uh, to some degree uh brandon heath and i were talking about this backstage last night at the ryman event how brandon's between our ages probably or yeah. maybe closer to your age a little bit but he said really my influence rich's influence on my life was post-mortem yeah. you know and yeah. and i think that's true for a lot of people and, and, and actually anyone who's influencing culture and dies early i think there is a whole new um, kind of base of followers that come along because it brings, it highlights it, it brings it to the attention of a larger audience, right? But I definitely, I've always had a propensity for sadness. Um, I like to sit in sadness probably too long. And even as a kid, I remember, <coughs> like, I, I would had a great school experience growing up and was even kind of a popular kid or whatever. I had friends, you know, really good friends. And I would at recess, I mean, this is like when I was 10 or 11, which is when I first encountered Rich's music. Um, I would walk the perimeter of the playground alone during recess, even though someone had invited me to play softball and volleyball and whatever. And not because I didn't like people. I just, uh, there was always this kind of, has always been this feeling of not belonging to some degree. And not because I've been excluded by anybody, but because it just feels like, I don't feel that comfortable in the skin. So when I first heard Rich's, the first record I heard was Liturgy, Legacy, Ragmuffin Band. It was because my mother had heard Hold Me Jesus somewhere. She didn't listen to Christian radio. Maybe she heard someone sing it at church, you know. Um, she went and bought the record. And she loved that song, but she did not like the record. <laughs> yeah. Just it was a little beyond her. She loves yeah. classical music and stuff. So she threw it my way and was like, you might like this. And, of course, when I heard really the first strains of Creed, but even, you know, the whole record, and Homie Jesus, too, was uh, was compelling for me. It was a new experience for me in, in Christian music because of what was being curated mostly in Christian music at the time. Yeah. My appreciation grew yeah. of that, like, struggle, the conflict to surrender. But I think that that kind of propensity for sadness, which I think was enriched, too, I think I identified somewhere without knowing I identified or what I was identifying with. Yeah. Yeah, that's you interesting. Know? I was just kind of reminiscing about some of some of my past memories of encountering Rich's music and um uh m- m- the very kind of advent of my or the, the launch of my radio career was uh at Wheaton College getting into the college radio station and at the time the radio station was a very um underground kind of vibe uh, underground alternative christian kind okay. of vibe so um so most of the music was this was this was 1994 okay um so it, it was mostly like the choir the choir yeah um you know daniel amos the mm-hmm. 77s um you know <laughs> you'd have you'd have like fleming and john and some mm-hmm. some like some of the more obscure Indie artists, of that indie time. Artist, yeah. yeah, indie artists, some of the like fringe Christian, you know, they, they weren't part of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And yet 
on the heavy rotation of the playlist. I remember, you know, starting at the radio station and it was all those artists and then Peace by Rich Mullins was on the heavy rotation <laughs> because I think even from the get-go, um, there was something magical and special about that Ragamuffin album, the mm-hmm. Liturgy Legacy Ragamuffin mm-hmm. Band album that people, I, I mean, I heard the, the term timeless yeah. mentioned from the very year it was released, which is yeah. kind of odd. And here we are 20 years, right. well, well, for 20, that album, 24 four, years yeah. later. Uh-huh. And, and sure enough, like it's a lot of it is better than anything being produced today. So it's amazing how how and that's not true of all of Rich's music. Obviously, some of it is very dated. Um, sure. But, but but that album in particular, I just remember even fit into the, you know, alternative Christian music world, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, there's a thing to it, you know, that, of course, listening last night as they were playing down there was one song the next to last song or is it the last song in the rec on liturgy but it actually has a kind of like a 90s vibe with the big guitar solos oh. and stuff uh but that's the only yeah, thing how on to it grow up big and strong yes yes the only one that really has like a bit of a 90s produced vibe which and is it's the still only cover cool. song on the album right that? isn't yeah. that interesting yeah. yeah um i was sitting beside reed arvin you know who produced the record and he was just it's funny because it's been 24 years more than probably 25 years since they produced that and he was remembering, I mean, he probably hasn't listened to it in years, I don't mm. think. And he was remembering exact guitar lines and he was just miming some stuff. It was oh, like, that's so cool. yeah, really cool. But yeah, I, it's rare that an artist has a timeless piece to their work, even more so rare today, I would say. Uh, well, we don't do as, we're not LP based, you know, so th- some of that's the reason. But I think. Yeah, there's something magical about the piece. Like everyone can revolve around, you know. Like I like some other Rich's stuff, but that's still what I'm gonna come back to. And yeah. so is person A, B, C, D, E, and F. A total different personality, totally different taste. They're gonna come back to that. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, I, you know, one of the things that I wanted to to ask you about the book is. Um, now that it is, well, uh, first, before I even ask mm-hmm. you, I just wanted to kind of congratulate you on the book because, Thanks. because I, um, you know, I, I think about this 20th anniversary commemoration and there are a couple of, you know, two, two or three or four different kind of events that are happening throughout the country. Um, you know, but outside of that, there isn't, I, I think it's really important for people to walk away with some physical remembrance, a physical product. Mm. And, and your book is really the only national thing that mm. people can, can grab onto. And last night I was talking to uh, someone at the concert and they said, um, it was uh, Matthew Clark, uh, you know mm-hmm. Matthew. So mm-hmm. uh, he said, um, remembering is the opposite of dismember. Hmm. And so to remember is to put something back together. And, um, and it's an important thing for us to do in, in just our walk is to remember. And, um, and I think that your book has really helped Hmm. people, um, process that in a commemorative way. So it's just a, um, and, and there were some other projects in the work, in the works right. that all got delayed and all got pushed yeah. back to next yeah. year. Yeah. And so it turns out that this book I feel is even has more subs- substance, m- is a more substantial 
commemoration. So sure, yeah, I think that it coincides with the 20th anniversary, which I think all we're trying to do. But uh, there's practical life that comes in the way of it. I am proud of it for that reason, you know, to get to uh, be a part of the space of this specific remembrance. I think what we're learning is that the kind of 20th anniversary, well, one, we're celebrating his life, not his death. So that can live on for another year or two in the sense of like, I think there will be a couple projects to carry on. Some, I think 20 years is a substantial enough time period that it gives the license for some things to surface um, over the next year or two and still have an audience. Right. Uh, I think it's also been a long time since the original tributes. I mean, it's been almost two decades. There were a couple that, you know, they came out, what, the two, one to two years after his death. So, and these are all different people. Uh, one thing, you know, about the Ryman show that Andrew Peterson hosted is, and Beth Lutz said this, she said, it was so beautiful to see, she said something effective, being beautiful to see. She realized, it like made sense to her that this new generation and how significant that was for her, w mm -hmm. who Rich, of course, was so personally important to her, but to see this whole new generation and couple generations of, and to see some of the people in the audience last night, there were 20, 22, 23-year-olds who would have had no, I mean, they were barely alive, yeah. you know? So, yeah, I, I think thanks for the affirmation about the book, but, you know, it was a tough assignment. Yeah. We've talked about this. There's a lot of people who feel they control Rich's legacy, and I definitely didn't make everyone happy. Yeah. Um, but I think that's even beyond me. I stewarded something, but I wasn't the controller of it yeah. either. Yeah. So people who were unhappy... I think that's on them, you yeah. know, uh, and it's okay. It's yeah. o it's okay to be disappointed, but yeah, I don't think there's any control of that legacy. I, several people told me that beforehand, like no one owns this. And when the family says that, you know, when David Mullins, his own brother gives me the freedom and the permission to pursue things, I don't know what else are you going to argue with. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. It gave me a lot of freedom. Oh, totally. Yeah. So, um, what do you think that somebody, um, this is sort of my last question about the book. What do you think somebody that um, really doesn't know much about Rich, um, what would they gain from picking up the book? Yeah, I think, you know, again, it's a list of spiritual conversations. And so I think any person who's a spiritual seeker can find some, I hate to say devotional aspects, because I think it's a, not quite as cut and dry as that. Uh, but they are you know, these bite-sized chapters, something that allows you to sit down, read something, and potentially put it back on, you know, your desk or nightstand for two weeks, and you could pick up the next time and still read something of value. So I think part of it is just how it's formatted, offers something to people who aren't specifically rich fans. And I want to say, it is, I feel like it is devotional. I know you're trying to downplay that, but... No, but, not but, necessarily. But, you know, I mean, even, even reading, like, quotes from Rich mm -hmm. can... You know, that's true. It, like th there are some things, some quotes that he has written and now now words of people that have been affected by his life and his mm -hmm. lyrics and, and his teaching and all of that, that uh, that I think you could really just you re read it, chew on it for a day that's or true. a week or whatever and really let it resonate. Because I think like part of what your book explores is how those those topics and those conversations 
most of them are just as pertinent today. Yeah, more pertinent in a lot yeah. of ways, or at least they've surfaced more. Yeah. So we're currently in the conversation where when Rich brought them up, we weren't as a church always in the conversation. We right. were trying to avoid it still. So I do think, yeah, these conversations of inclusivity, of, again, relationship versus religion, of what uh, eternal perspective, where do we fit in the yeah. whole thing, I think those are meaningful for anybody. Uh, we tried hard to include Rich in everything, but I think you're going to hear a lot of my authorship, and my authorship naturally is going to go towards bigger spiritual ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think other people do that too. Ashley Cleveland does, does an amazing job of writing. Mm. You know, I think Amy does an amazing job of writing. I think Carolyn Ahrens, who was a part of it, uh, all these people who were shoulder to shoulder with Rich. But then, of course, Andrew Peterson, I kind of I told him last night, I've, I hope he didn't feel slighted that his contribution to the book, which is so important to not have Andrew in a rich tribute of a new generation is, is missing something. And so, but his, his format as a Q and a in there, we had three Q and a's. One was Shane Claiborne, who's an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. simple way, theologian and interesting liver and uh, his Q and a. Cause what I felt like with the Q and a's is there was too much. I didn't want to edit our conversations down to an essay there was too much that they said that was pure. It's funny. Someone commented and said, well, this obviously was an interview by email. And I was like, well, no, it wasn't. He's just Andrew and Shane are both that poignant, you know, mm. that wasn't r- wrapped up. So Andrew's words in there. Jason Gray had a wonderful contribution. Even people you wouldn't expect like Cindy Morgan, mm. um, who was, of course, a peer of Rich's, a little younger, um, and has an amazing story about, him offending her. Uh, <laughs> is that in the book? It's not in the book. I'll <laughs> oh. tell you what it is now. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll try to, like, you know, it's Good. Cindy's to tell, but what's <laughs> funny is that there used to be a seminar in the Rockies. Is that what it right. used to be called? Yeah, in yeah, SS yeah. Park? Yeah. Uh, that the GMA put on. Huge, yeah. you know, conference for people wanting to be discovered and stuff. So they were having a breakout session of some sort, and I think it was John Mays, who John Mays signed Cindy and Point of Grace was big in the word days yeah. in the early 90s. It was having a lot of success. So, uh, but it was pop stuff, you know. And But Cindy was always an incredible songwriter, right. you know. So they were in like a little round table, and Rich came over and joined the conversation. I think maybe Don Donahue was there too. And they were talking to some, you know, amateur songwriters or whatever about how to hone their craft or whatever. And Rich says something like, I mean, if you want to write a song like Cindy Morgan, you can write a song like Cindy Morgan, or you can actually write something that has meaning and value or something like oh, that. Geez. And of course he had no idea who John Mays was. And John Mays is sitting there like, wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and John's <laughs> such a cool dude, you know, but it's signed Cindy and all this stuff. So then he realizes somewhere he's talking backstage. And I think maybe Don was a part of this. And Don was like, Hey, that was John and John signed, you know, like kind of connected the yeah. dots for Rich. And Rich was like, well, I don't care, whatever. And then it dawned on Rich he was not thinking of Cindy Morgan. Or no, 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 no. Okay, I'm getting this little mixed up. You can edit this. But (laughs) so what happened later, so Rich just didn't act like he cared, you know, didn't apologize or something. And later he was in a car of a promoter, someone that had Christian radio on, and Cindy's How Could I Ask for More, her big signature song came on, which is singer-songwriter all the way. He was like, who is this? This is fantastic. And the guy or the driver was like, Cindy Morgan. He was like, Wait, I was, 
Okay, Cindy Morgan's not who I'm thinking of. So then he tried calling her for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, no. He would leave messages on her answering machine, not leave his return number, but be like, Cindy, you have got to call me back. This is Rich Mullins. Please call me back. It's urgent. And he would never leave his number. So she would be like, <laughs> one, what does he how want? Do I reach you? And then two, how do I reach you? you know? And then finally he got in touch with her or something, and he apologized, and he said, I realized when I heard your song on the radio, it wasn't you. I was thinking of Kim Boyce or something oh, like some, that. Some other yeah, and he did it song. like, but yeah, this singer. was in public where he was apologizing, oh, and then he said Kim Boyce in public that her music was terrible or something. Oh man! So classic rich of like getting foot, himself in trouble, foot in mouth, yeah, or whatever. <laughs> and of course, Cindy, you know, didn't care. But um, yeah, so even contributions from people like Cindy has a beautiful contribution about uh, Dove Awards, which uh, is. I'll I'll kind of abbreviate this because I think it's cool. Um, word used to have the word spectacular during when Dove Awards used to host the GMA week and you had that whole week of events. And at the Ryman, I think they used to have it. And so they would like kind of showcase their artists and what was coming up in this big concert event. But everyone was all glitzed out. You know, it was like put your best foot forward. Word's paying for it. Do it. And, of course, Cindy was on it. Well, Rich was on it one year. He came out at the end, and he led either Sometimes by Step or Awesome God or something and really engaged the audience in in a spirit of worship. And the audience, much like last night, we experienced, you know, just on their feet, singing, and, like, you know, so the attention was, the focus was recentered. And then when he finished the song and they kind of finished singing, they just started chanting, rich, more rich, more rich, or whatever. And Cindy said, she looked at Rich, and it was as if he was lost. He looked out and just thought. He, she said his face read like you're missed. You've you missed, missed it. it. Oh. And while they were chanting, barefoot as he was, he just walked out of the venue and out the back door while they were still wow. chanting for innovation. You know, um, an encore. And she just said she was so struck by that moment of like, just how he had facilitated such an environment that didn't focus on artistry for a moment and everyone was engaged in that and then to be pulled right back out of that so but also for the gumption to not give in to the to the audience right. peer pressure i would have yeah. i mean even if it was leading them in another song of worship especially because you're there to represent the label right. you know and it's an artist week and i mean so that shows that promo. you know uh, yeah, that he was processing that at a different level. Yeah, and I think that was probably a bit later in his, you know, that was probably 94, 95 yeah. if Cindy was around. So, you know, David Mullins has spoken a lot in events we've done over the past couple of weeks when people would, someone asked, do you know what Rich's state of mind was in the year or two leading up to his death? And David said no, but he said, I do know that from hearing other people he was talking with and my experience with him, that there was a lostness and there was, um, he literally kept saying, I don't know what's next and I don't know what home is. Mm. You know, and I don't know where home is. So there seemed to be a, a really wild restlessness in the end, which I think was evidence even in his physicality. I mean, he changed in the, he, I don't know if you ever look yeah. at videos, but he visibly aged. Yeah. And he was still only what 41 41 yeah. i mean that's what your age that's my exact yeah age, and i yeah. wouldn't say you've aged like that over the past two three years i mean there was a visible yeah. age where rich looked 50 55 yeah. to some degree wow yeah so um kind of last question um for you uh because you mentioned that you were 
already working on a different book project and, and I don't really know what you can or can't talk about. Sure. But I just wanted to give you an opportunity to just to tell us what's next for you sure. as, a, as a songwriter or as mm -hmm. an author. Well, I continue to write songs. And in fact, there's one I'm really excited about that John Tibbs just cut that I think you'll really be interested in. It's called Shots Were Fired and it's about the destruction of our faith and the reconstruction of our faith. And he does an amazing job, very haunting. And I think John's got a real songwriter soul in him that I didn't know until we met. Um, so I co-write a lot. Um, but uh, working on another book project, not with um, the worthy one may come back to fruition, but we're focused on this one for now. But with another publisher that would, um, of course, you know how much hymns have been a part of my oh musical yeah. career. Yeah. And, uh, it would be a study um, that... Uh, looks into the characters, main characteristics of God. So you might do a six-week study over one or two characteristics of God and use hymns uh, to kind of introduce those characteristics, but then the study be a study. Yeah. But then I would record kind of my Andrew and Friends thing as a as a, a companion, companion piece yeah. to it. Yeah, which I'm really excited about, the fact that, I mean, I th the fact that people keep coming to me for hymns things because I could live there forever and I'm getting to write it with my brother, who is a minister, a pastor out in Orange County. And he's authored a couple books, very theological, theologically bent. It way, he's way more heady than I am theologically. So when I was asked to write this, I realized, well, I can tell the story of the hymns. I know the hymns. I can pick the right hymns that would, just, that would talk about those characteristics of God. But I don't know if I trust my theology enough in, the public, you know, in a public discourse to actually be a Bible study. I think I could weigh into it, but I think I wanted my brother's rudder of, because uh, there's some things he'll push back on with me. There's some things I push back on with him. And, and theologically, I'm just a little loosey-goosey. Um, I know that about myself. It's how I, I think, maintain grace in my own life yeah. and foster it, hopefully, in the lives of others. You know, we're always trying to balance that, right? The grace and truth thing. Yeah. And I would definitely err on the side of grace before I would truth. So... It's just where I live, at least right now, that could evolve. But anyway, so yeah, that, and then I think, so the music companion of that, but I have a songwriter record in me that's pretty much done writing for that is not necessarily spiritually focused, even though I think everything I do has some sort of spiritual right. output. It's, it's my umbrella. But I'm really excited about that. Victor Krauss, um, Allison's brother, is producing it for me, who's produced like a lot of Love It, Michael McDonald, so he's got a cool vibe, and... Uh, we haven't gone to the studio yet for it, and I really am kind of aching to do that because it doesn't matter what it sells. It doesn't matter if anyone likes it or not. It's just something I want to do for myself, and I literally mean that, and I think sometimes the things we do for ourselves actually, you know, the product ends up being a little more pure, but it's a lot about heartache and loss, naturally. Um, Cin Cindy and I wrote a song that I think will be the title track called What I Thought I Wanted. That sounds awesome. We'll see. Cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for being a part. Yeah. Thanks, Dave, as always. Well, I was just lucky enough to uh, stumble upon Andrew and got to meet him and 
build a friendship with him from the early days of the Under the Radar radio show. Uh, we actually met in 2009, so um, we have done a lot together over the years. Um, different concerts, tours, special events. Of course, he's been to Escape to the Lake twice, and he's also um, we've done tons of interviews with him. So uh, it's always great to not only cross paths with him, but just to work together on stuff. So he's actually also a major contributor to our new release date podcast. Um, and uh, so it's awesome that we get to hang out with Andrew. Um, in fact, he actually even scratched my back. He had me on as the guest, <laughs> the interview guest, uh, because he was hosting um, the, uh, the Christian radio station um, yeah, down in Nashville, the Moody radio station. Uh, he was filling in for the morning show. And so last week on, on Monday, September 25th, he had me in for an hour where we talked about just what's going on here at UTR Media. So, boy, it's it's just fun to, uh, uh, to travel this journey along with Andrew. And uh, so speaking of podcasts, um, we actually have four podcasts out in the world right now that you can listen to. Uh, I mentioned release dates. Of course, there's this one, Green Room Door. Uh, there's also Good Patron and the Gourmet Music Podcast. Uh, coming up soon, in just a few weeks, we'll be releasing and uh, debuting a brand new podcast called Side Note. All of these you can subscribe to at uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or at utrmedia.org. And just a, a quick note that if you would like to kind of scratch our back a little bit, uh, we could use it because all of these podcasts that I mentioned are fairly new. Um, you know, only one, two, three episodes for each of them. So, um, so it is in these early days, it's really important to have uh, some good reviews of the shows. So if you've enjoyed any of the titles that I just mentioned, uh, we would love for you to uh, click on a five-star review for, you know, at the place where you listen. Um, many times you can do that right in your app. So it's super easy to do it. And if you don't mind even leaving a little review, a little comment, even if it's short, um, it helps a lot because in just even the algorithms that are used, it puts our podcast in front of more people. So thank you for considering helping us that way. All right, we are going to take a short break, but on the flip side of that, we will be having a conversation with Seattle-based singer-songwriter Jesse McNeil next on Green Room Door. This UTR media presentation is sponsored by the Worthy Publishing Book, Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth, by Andrew Greer and Randy Cox. Enjoy spiritual conversations inspired by the life and lyrics of Rich Mullins with contributions by David Mullins, Andrew Peterson, Ashley Cleveland, and more with the forward from Grammy Award winner Amy Grant. Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth, available now at Amazon or at windsofheavenstuffofearth.com. This UTR Media episode is sponsored by the new release from singer-songwriter Caroline Cobb. A Home and a Hunger by Caroline Cobb is 11 songs that share the biblical narrative of kingdom hope. Behold, behold. 
Home and a Hunger by Caroline Cobb is available now on iTunes and at carolinecobb.com. Hey guys, tune in to the two-hour broadcast of the Rich Mullins Tribute Concert from Escape to the Lake 2017. Hear tribute songs from great artists. So if I stand, let me stand on the stories from those who loved him. He made a real effort to contribute and to make a difference. And that was extremely meaningful to me. So in that way, the, the truthiness and the integrity of the way he lived made me feel okay about how, how hard it is to be truthy and filled with integrity. UTR Media's Rich Mullins Tribute Concert. Available now at YouTube or at utrmedia.org. Welcome back. Uh, I think I discovered this next artist uh, through a listener. Yes, I love getting listener requests and being introduced to new artists. And I think a request came in to play the music of Jesse McNeil, um, who was a new artist to me. And I thought it was really good. Well, then she released a follow-up album that I thought was really great. And uh, so I invited her to be one of the artists on the roster of Escape to the Lake 2015. And I know this is a little bit of podcasting nuts and bolts, but I think it's kind of fun to peek behind the curtain a little bit. So this interview that we're going to hear, I actually recorded um, at Escape to the Lake 2015. So the interview is a couple years old, um, but uh, most of it, I think pretty much all of it is still relevant today as far as, um, you know, Jesse's latest music is, is still her latest music. Um, it just so happened that, you know, sometimes I record interviews and I, I know exactly when and where I'm going to use that interview. And um, Jesse's we recorded and... Um, it, it just so happened that we went through some transition t- stuff in 2015 and didn't find the right place to play it. And then uh, she actually kind of took a break from music due to health reasons. And um, um, so it just didn't feel right to play this interview in 2016. So it just never made it on the air. So this is an unaired interview um, with Jesse McNeil. And so it's kind of fun to find some of these golden nuggets that, um, for whatever reason, didn't didn't get played on the air in, in the last couple of years. And I can now have a platform to feature some of these fantastic interviews that we already have in the vault. So um, I am excited that you get to learn a little bit more about Jessie and her music. Um, I'm not going to play a clip right now because uh, we'll be talking about her most recent album, and I'll be I'll play a clip of the music. Um, here during the interview. So let's get into the conversation live from Escape to the Lake with Jesse McNeil. How did, uh, kind of going in the Wayback Machine, how did you kind of begin your love of music? Like what kind of inspired that that love to begin? Yeah, that's 
a great question. So uh, I was raised in a musical home, and um, my dad played guitar, and my mom played piano, and uh, my dad was in a country band, and the first concert he ever took me to was Ricky Skaggs. So yeah. uh, bluegrass and roots is, is definitely in there. And then as a child of the 80s, went through a huge Prince phase. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, so that it's kind of funny to say that because I have come full circle and am completely Americana, bluegrass, a little bit of bluegrass, a little bit of alt country. Uh, so survived that, that part of my childhood to, to come back to my roots. So yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, so really, yeah, just raised, raised in music and yeah. always filled our home growing up. Yeah. And then, um, you know, how how is it? How do you how do you think you approach music differently, being from the Pacific Northwest, as opposed to kind of being in the hubs like Nashville or something like that? Is there uh, sort of what are the pros and cons of being having that distance from Music City? Let's say. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, one thing that's great for me about the Seattle area is it's gray and it just rains a ton. <laughs> and I am actually an indoor girl. Like, I love being inside. And as an artist, I love a melancholy gray day. And uh, for me, I find it super inspiring. And, um, you know, because I'm married and I have kids, I mean, this is where I am. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be in Seattle for the foreseeable future. So... I guess it's just not really a question, and I've been really blessed um, to just find some great players in my church. I've, I've got a drummer and a bass player who play with me regularly, and I uh, was able to find a pedal steel player. We've, we do have a thriving community, and um, I've been able to network and, and just tap into that. So, yeah, I feel like it's, it hasn't been an issue. Yeah. 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 Um, all right, so let's talk about Promised Land. Um, okay. Tell me first about the the making of the album and sort of just just as you sort of ponder back on the the hurdles and all the the things that made it come together what are the what are the pieces that kind of stick out to you oh wow well probably the biggest hurdle and act of faith as an independent artist is the funding part of it and I'd saved up some, uh, but was planning to do a Kickstarter and, and had done one before, but needed to raise quite a bit more this time since this would be a full band studio project. So that was the initial hurdle. It's just a huge act of faith, putting your work out there, asking people if they believe in it and, and are willing to support you financially. It's extremely humbling. Um, and it was a slow go. My first Kickstarter, we just really hit it out of the gates. And this time I was... I don't think I even hit 50% until the last three days. So wow. God really stretched me. And I had a friend, another artist say, just wait, you have no idea who's waiting in the wings and who, who God is going to use to make this album happen. And in the last 24 hours, one family, three people from that one family each gave $500. I never in a million years would have thought that those folks would have pledged more than even $25. Yeah. So um, that was probably the biggest initial hurdle in the album. And I think once I got through that, I felt really felt the Lord's hand on it. Like, this is going to happen. He's got my back. He's going to provide and, and take me through the rest of the process. So I want to, before we jump into the album itself, I just want to follow up on that. How does, um, how does sort of this Kickstarter world that we live in how does that change your perspective or or improve the uh the steps 
uh, that you can take as an artist. So, uh, you know, crowdsourcing, Kickstarter, all that is kind of relatively new in the last four or five years. Um, how, now that we live in that world where you as an artist can receive that Kickstarter support, how does that improve the way in which you can go about thinking and dreaming and planning for a project? Sure. Well, Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general is, it just really makes it possible for someone like me. Um, you know, I, I'm not playing a ton of shows. I don't have a ton of money socked away for it. I don't have huge sales yet. So there's a big gap. Um, and so it just really helps an artist like me uh, fill that gap. I think the question going forward is now that I've done two Kickstarters, you know, what happens in another, you know, two to three years when I look to do my next album? Um, you know, I'm hopeful I can do it again or, or maybe God will provide in a different way, but it's certainly a fantastic tool when you can't, when you're not able to rely just on sales and yeah. shows to yeah. fund a record. So, yeah. yeah. Good. Good. Okay, so tell us uh, just about the album Promised Land. Uh, it's sort of a broad stroke, but just kind of uh, as a finished product now, um, the overall themes and, and uh, um, just how you look at it as a complete project. gives me the songs and then I sort of had to lay them out after the fact and say what is this album really about what are the themes and I think it's I see a strong sense of place in the album sort of images of, of moving from one place to another in life and and in the seasons that we go through so you'll hear um, you know some nostalgia about the past about um, you know my childhood and my roots um, some reflections on the past as far as just hard things I've gone through, season, uh, seasons I've gone through. Um, but then with just a firm vision um, toward the future and um, not just in a timeline sort of way, but in an idea of where am I going to set my heart? Am I going to set my heart in circumstances or things that I've been through or am I going to set my heart in God's promises in this in this idea of a promised land and I've I've seen him do a lot of restoration in my life and um, it just really felt like the natural title of the album and yeah. so yeah That's good. Uh, I would love to get your impression about escape to the lake just you know your this is a, f a first impression for you so yeah, it's been great, and I um, came in for the songwriters boot camp, which I really feel like that was um, 
well planned and, and it was good for me because I was able to come into sort of a smaller setting and get to know just a handful of the artists before completely diving in and sort of a, develop a camaraderie. So I will give a plug for the Songwriters Boot Camp. <laughs> it's a great way to just get plugged into the community early on in the weekend. Um, the other thing for me has been uh, kind of before I came and even being here, a little bit of a sense of intimidation because I'm new to Under the Radar. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat of a new artist. And boy, it's easy to look at these folks who've been doing it for 20 years and feel like they've got it all together. And I've been really impressed with how genuine and vulnerable folks have been. Um, it's been really, really encouraging to, to just realize we're all, we're all in this together. You know, we're maybe in a different leg of our journey, but we've all been there. You know, we've all had those those first gigs that that feel scary, or um, you know, coming into a new situation for me. I've never been at a, I've never played as part of a mu uh, at a music festival before, but I felt very welcomed and very encouraged. So awesome. yeah, great community, great work, Dave. You bring in good people. Uh, okay, we're still recording. Good. <laughs> All right. Um, not paid to say that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One more question from me. You've experienced some of this in the songwriters bootcamp, but there's obviously a lot of up and coming artists. You probably, I mean, you consider yourself an up and coming DIY kind of artist. And, um, but you might be a few steps ahead of where someone else is as far as um, wanting to kind of get to the point where they are recording an album or they are. Yeah. So, pieces of advice that oh, yeah. that you've already kind of learned along the way that you would if someone else was kind of a few steps behind you say well just think about this as you take the next lap around the block absolutely so they talked about in the boot camp um someone shared about being on your couch and playing songs for your cat and that is literally where i was i have cats i'll admit it i have cats <laughs> uh, and i felt really stuck i felt stuck on my couch and i i loved writing and i've been singing um publicly or you know, my whole life really, but I hadn't taken my guitar out and played songs that I'd written, just me and my guitar, and I felt really scared, and I just didn't know where to start. So I ended up connecting with the worship pastor at my church, and she and I formed a creative community of other artists, photographers, songwriters, musicians, and we began to gather twice a month, and that was so huge for me. I cannot speak highly enough about the value of being in community with other creatives because we tend to get really isolated. We really beat ourselves up. We think our work doesn't matter and we need to spur each other on. We need a safe place to share our work, sort of to test, give things a test flight. And that, it really did give me my wings because every two weeks I would feel, you know, the pressure, a good kind of pressure to have a new song ready to share. And then I'd get feedback. And through that, um, other folks in our church began to come alongside me and just cheer me on and say, you need to be doing this. You need to make a record. So for me, it really started with community and then just pushing through fear, playing a ton of open mics, you know, taking those small opportunities and um, just going for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That's good. Mm -hmm. Who would like to ask something? All right. My name is Rick Starr from Flower Mound, Texas. And just who we talked a little, a little earlier is that need to get to know you this weekend. And uh, you kind of hinted at this that you, you, don't, you haven't done much touring. So now you have, right. your, you have the album now. Right. This, this is, I mean, obviously this is an incredible album. I bought it the other night. 
And uh, so now you're going to, I think that's probably next on the horizon. And so I want to kind of want to know what, what, do you have any idea how you're going to look to touring? Are you going to look yeah. to doing the house concerts route or you're going to, or coffee houses or, you know, especially I think you have a family and I yes. know that plays into it too. Do you go out just for uh, a few days during the week and then come back on the, uh, how do you, how do you see yourself working on that or is it? You're still working yeah, on that's a great question. Yeah, with my first album, I really focused on my local audience and just building relationships with local churches and, and some house concert folks. And with this album, uh, I will give a shout out to another UTR artist. Uh, Tanya Godsey is one of my best friends, and, and she's been a part of Under the Radar. And she has been encouraging me to, to, to get out there and, and to take this on the road and, and to be bold and, again, push past fear and uh and take it out there so i've been doing just that i've been working the past few months actually on booking shows for the fall and the spring um house concerts churches uh i love women's retreats i've had the opportunity to do a couple women's retreats where i've been able to lead the worship share a few songs and even do a a speaking piece so and you're right with the family really a, a weekend or two weekends a month is is the max for me right now if other opportunities come up i Will certainly consider them um, but as far as what I'm personally going after I'm kind of shooting for maybe two weekends a month and then maybe a few local things spread in but yeah the reality is for someone like me my songs will not be heard unless I play them in front of a live audience so there's a stewardship part of that I've made the album and a lot of people gave to make the album possible and so I feel like I- I've got to do the work I've got to try and, and get across some state lines and share the songs. so yeah I have California coming up uh, Idaho. Um, I'm hoping to get to Nashville in October. Um, and then I, I'd like to come to the Midwest uh, next spring. So, yeah. Good. Good. Who else has a question? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm Olivia from uh, Reedsville, Pennsylvania. And my first question, just a fun question, um, ice cream is my favorite thing, and it's summer, so favorite ice cream flavor? <laughs> Oh my goodness, that is so funny. Uh, probably coffee. I'm from Seattle, so I think I have to say that, but I do. I always go for the coffee flavored or coffee with chocolate chips. Um, <laughs> and the second serious question is, um, who would you um, say were your musical influences? Yeah, Obviously yeah. Obviously the bluegrass um, alt-country, and I'm interested to hear more specifically. Yeah, yeah. So the artists I usually list as my influences are Mindy Smith. I'm a huge Mindy Smith fan. Alison Krauss, ooh, getting some applause, yeah. Um, Patty Griffin, Sean Colvin, and then Emmylou Harris. And I, yeah, I just love Emmylou. So those are my five that I always list, yeah. I'm Lenny Sampson, and I'm from Seymour, Wisconsin, or Seymour. Um, what was it like to become a singer? Like, who inspired you? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think my parents inspired me because they were always playing music in, in my home growing up. And, uh, and then I got involved in choir when I was in high school and college. And uh, specifically jazz. I sang a lot of jazz. And um, do you know much about jazz, Lainey? So there's a cool thing that happens in jazz. You'll have these chord progressions, and then people will make up their own melodies with like a trumpet or a saxophone. Like it's not even written on the sheet music. They're just hearing it and making up their own melodies. And uh, in vocal jazz, it's called scatting. And so I did a lot of scatting when I was in high school and college. And I think that 
sort of laid the foundation for um, writing, for songwriting and melody writing. Um, what instruments can you play? I just play the guitar. That's my only instrument. I took piano lessons, though, when I was about your age. I took piano for probably two or three years. And like every grown-up says, I wish I had stuck with it. So if you kids are doing music lessons, stay with it. Rick again here. Uh, obviously, uh, making connections with other people. You mentioned Tanya Gotzi, who came here last year. Mm -hmm. Great great woman, great singer-songwriter. Have there been any, uh, even just within the last couple of days, I would love to know what kind of uh, networking or just... Uh, uh, kind of you've had with any of the other artists here that you can kind of see in the, fu in the future that you're going to be kind of either touring with or recording with or just writing with? Uh. Yeah, that's a fun question because I actually have something that happened just today. I was thinking about the song. I'll be playing one song on the main stage tonight and just thought, man, it would be great to have one other musician up there with me. So I approached Kyle from Mercy Child. I've kind of been hanging out a bit with them since I got here. And he's going to join me on mandolin uh, for my song tonight. I know. I'm so excited. I don't have mandolin on my album, but it was an instrument that we considered. So, And just now we were talking and he, he said, I'm your guy now. You know, if you next time you record record send me the tracks I've got pro tools I can send over my tracks so that was really really fun and a great picture of what happens here I've, I've just loved interacting with all the artists so yeah Hi, I'm Linda from Linwood Illinois and uh, I was just wondering how you came to choose or no Christ yeah so I was very blessed to be raised in a Christian home um, but like we all have to do, um, had to come to my own understanding of, of faith and who Jesus was and, and uh, how he impacted my life. And that really happened through uh, youth group and through getting involved with Young Life and um, just realizing that, you know, it wasn't just going to church. It was having a relationship with the Lord. So that happened, I think, in end of middle school, high school. And, and God's been very kind to me. I, I haven't had a, a time of, of rebellion. I've had some hardships in my life, but um, I've been walking with the Lord probably since I was a teenager and just very, very grateful for all he's done in my life. Yeah. Well, let's give a thank you to Jesse. Thank you. Woo, first interview over. Oh, one more thing to check off the list. Yeah, Love that's it. awesome. I know. Is that any You know, I don't even think I knew until the very end of that interview that this was Jesse McNeil's very first radio interview, and it was an honor to, to sit down and chat with her. Again, that was recorded um, at Escape to the Lake 2015 in front of a small studio audience. It was great to field their questions, um, and still, her latest project is called Promised Land. Um, you can get more information about her music. Also, she loves doing house concerts, um, women's retreats, and uh, even guest worship leading. So uh, you can get more information and connect with her at her website, jessiemcneil.com. 
On the next episode of Green Room Door, we'll be having an extended interview with C-Dub. Yes, singer-songwriter Christopher Williams. You won't want to miss that. Of course, you can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you want to correspond at all, uh, maybe you have some questions about things you heard on this episode, or if you even have ideas or suggestions about future guests we should have on Green Room Door, you can email us direct at greenroomdoorpodcast at gmail.com. My name is Dave Trout, and I'll talk to you next time. Green Room Door is a production of UTR Media, an independent, listener-supported, non-profit media ministry in Chicago, Illinois, and online at utrmedia.org. Now, as promised... We're going to introduce you to UTR Media's newest podcast. Here is the first four minutes of episode one of the show release date. Available now at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and at utrmedia.org. On December 13th, 2013, one of the biggest artists of the current generation did something almost unheard of. With no notice, no teases, no marketing, Beyoncé created a release date for herself. And this surprise album nearly broke the internet. Released without warning in the middle of the night on Friday, electrifying fans. A new way of marketing with news spreading like wildfire. It's already shot up to number one. This is her vision. Beyoncé is fully in control of you know, the Beyonce experience. This is her, like, drop the mic moment and walk off stage. Uh, unless you have been living under a rock, you know that Beyonce has changed the game. Beyonce, the superstar dropping a brand new album overnight, complete with music videos for every track and then some, taking her fans and the music world quite by surprise. Well, that's darn near platinum already in just three days. It's incredible from only one yeah. retailer. You're the guy in the know. Did you know this was coming? I knew it was coming about uh, 45 minutes before the rest of the world knew it was coming, and I had to sit in my hands to keep from, like, screaming it from the top of mountaintops because I was sworn to secrecy. On December 12th, it was just another normal day in U.S. history with all the old Beyoncé hits. On December 13th, it was Beyoncé mania with 14 new songs and 17 videos, In the hours after the surprise release, mentions of the Queen Bee on Twitter hit close to 1.2 million. The release even crashed iTunes. Yes, crazy. It became the fastest selling album in iTunes history. It even changed all industry release dates. Many music insiders cite Beyonce's Friday the 13th release and its mega success as the reason why the whole music industry moved the standard album release day from Tuesdays to Fridays. To the world, this self-titled album came out of nowhere. With the Instagram message, surprise, it felt like a nod to Genesis 1, and Beyonce spoke this album into existence, from nothingness to somethingness. But that's not the whole story. It never is. 
The reality is that it took a large team, likely in the hundreds, to create this new album and series of videos, and the production process spanned a year and a half. This entire crew, from songwriters to producers to videographers to hairstylists to catering, all had to keep one of the biggest secrets in modern music history. Now, not every release date is a secret. Not every release date breaks the internet. And not every artist is Beyonce. But nearly all release dates do have a story, an often untold story, about all the key decisions, risks, misfires, drama, strokes of genius, and maybe a few secrets that all combine to make that release date a reality. here to explore that untold story and let you experience the making of an album from concept to creation. From UTR Media, I'm Dave Trout, and this is Release Date. be a better place to start than to follow the journey of someone who has never made an album before. Me. (laughs) This album isn't my music, but rather I wanted to create a tribute album for one of my musical heroes, Beyonce. Okay, just kidding. Actually, Rich Mullins. Judge the quick and the dead of the sons of 